Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sherry. You know I always separate myself emotionally from the subjects of my podcast. This was one that was almost impossible to turn my emotions off. Lane Staley was a big part of my teenage years. He was the singer of Alice in Chains, one of the biggest bands of the 90s. I really enjoyed their music and Lane had this very unique voice that didn't sound like anyone else. More than just how much I liked him back in the day, my son was an even bigger Alice in Chains fan. He loved guitarist Jerry Cantrell, who was one of his influences on guitar. He also loved Lane and would say how amazing his voice was. I want to believe that if Michael were here, he would want me to tell Lane's story. At least I think he would. I don't know. Michael was way smarter than me, and I can't figure out what he would want because he operated in a completely different way. I'm going to believe Michael would give me his blessing on this one. I did dedicate this one to him and his former partner, Yenna, who was more like a best friend. They shared a love for Alice in Chains and borrowed each other's CDs and both agreed that Sludge Factory was the best song on the Unplugged album. When I hear an Alice in Chains song, I immediately think of them around 2017. So here we go. My sources are listed in the description area of the video. This is Heaven Beside You, The Final Years of Lane Staley. Lane died in 2002. There was a lot going on during this time, but for famed Alice in Chains frontman Lane Staley, this was a year that was nothing but staying home isolated and using drugs and playing video games. No connection to the outside world. And if he did, it was usually very close family and his life was way different than it used to be. Lane spent his last year basically just dying. He knew that he was. His drug addiction was so bad that he depended on it like a diabetic depends on insulin. He would wake up, get high, play video games, and repeat the process each day. He was all alone, no one lived with him, and he didn't have regular visitors except his drug dealer. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around it because he was once one of the biggest rock stars in the world. He was still a multimillionaire and had enough money to live a lavish lifestyle until he was 100 years old. He was extremely wealthy from his years in Alice in Chains. I'm going to give you some background on Lane before we get into his last few years, which is what this story is about. Lane Thomas Staley was born August 22, 1967 in Kirkland, Washington. His parents are Philip and Nancy. Now, Lane's original middle name was Rutherford. Lane hated it, and when he was a teenager, he had his middle name legally changed to Thomas. He chose Thomas because he was a big fan of Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. One thing I found adorable was that when he was nine years old, he did this book in school called All About Me. I've done these, and you've probably done them as well. It's where you write in the book what your favorite food is, what your favorite school subject is. On the part that asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Lane wrote that he wanted to be a singer. Lane's parents separated when he was seven years old. His mother, Nancy, raised him along with his stepdad. His dad left and wouldn't be heard from for a long, long time. We're going to fast forward to when Lane met Jerry Cantrell in 1987. Lane had this little unknown band called Alice in Chains. Jerry was homeless since his family had kicked him out. Both of these guys were around 20 years old. Lane invited Jerry to come live with him in this decrepit rehearsal space that he lived at. The two friends hit it off. 
Jerry was this amazing guitarist, and Lane was an amazing singer. They were like each other's other half. Think of Tommy Lee and Nikki Six, or Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. That was Lane and Jerry. At the time in the late 80s, they were broke and just trying to survive together. Alice in Chains was an old defunct band that Lane was a part of, but he wanted to reform the band with Jerry and asked his former bandmates if they were cool with him taking that name Alice in Chains and using it for his new band. The new Alice in Chains played a few shows. Their demo was passed along to Seattle music promoters and the manager of Soundgarden. People noticed Lane's unique voice and couldn't believe this skinny guy could produce the sounds that he did. Alice in Chains blew up pretty quick. They were known for Lane's unique vocals. Also, the vocals that Lane and Jerry harmonized together. So they basically shared vocal duties, which is admirable since Jerry was also lead guitar. They released multiple albums, and they were internationally known. In 1994, they released the album Jar of Flies. As soon as the album was done and it hit the airwaves, Lane enters rehab for heroin addiction. They had a giant tour coming up where they were going to play with Metallica. Basically, the best thing that could happen to any band is to open up for Metallica. The problem was, at the time, Lane was still using heroin. The band was forced to drop off the bill and cancel their shows. They were were replaced by Candlebox. The band ended up breaking up for six months. These other guys are pissed. Jerry Cantrell worked so hard and had to pass up a large amount of money to tour with Metallica because his lead singer couldn't stay off of drugs. I don't blame him for being upset. These guys showed a lot of patience for Lane, but this was devastating. Alice in Chains would resurface in April of 1996 for a one-time MTV Unplugged special. I'm sure you've heard it. You know this was an amazing show, and I can only compare one other Unplugged show to it, and that's Nirvana. They played all their most famous hits acoustic. This was my favorite performance of theirs of all time. The opening song was Nutshell, and just hearing those first few chords can take me into a place that is very dark. I don't recommend listening to that song if you're depressed as the song is written about suicide. My son could play it and sing it really well, and just for that reason, it's difficult to listen to. There's a line in the song that says, I'd feel better dead, and hearing Lane sing that makes you feel like he's really speaking to you from his heart. This Unplugged show has Lane walking out visibly skinnier than he once was. A lot of folks think he didn't do that great, but I feel he did an amazing job. A photo from this show is on your screen at the bottom half, and Lane has pink hair. The song sounded completely different from their electric versions, and the whole album was just brilliant. These guys hadn't played together in a long while, and reuniting for this show was a huge thing for them. Lane came out and nailed it. He wore sunglasses for most of the show, even though it was inside. You can tell he's not well in the videos, but he still did an amazing job. Lane lost his longtime fiance, the beautiful Demry Parrot, in 1996 due to a drug overdose. He was obviously devastated, but still continues to use heroin. He's deeply depressed, and his addiction is now the center of his life. Lane is described at this t- point to have just given up. Every moment was using or thinking about using. He's not like your average heroin user. He's not stealing to buy drugs or losing his home and living on the street. Lane was a multimillionaire. He had plenty of money. If he ran out of heroin, he just bought more. He never had to go without. 
His albums had been out for years, and he was still able to live comfortably just from album sales and whatever he's made over the last 10 years as a rock star. He doesn't need a tour. He makes approximately $90,000 per month, which in today's money is $159,000. Again, he doesn't even have to work at this point. I could live really well off of that kind of money, too. Lane didn't have a wife or kids or anyone that depended on his income. He was free to do whatever he wants. You couldn't look at Lane and tell he was a rock star by this point. He's losing his good looks. He's six foot tall and getting very, very skinny. It was incredibly sad. Lane was very open about his drug use. He didn't hide it from his band or his family. He wrote a lot of songs about drug use. There are five songs on the Dirt album that were written about heroin. But in 1996, he told Rolling Stone magazine the following, quote, Drugs worked for me. And now they're turning against me. Now I'm walking through hell, and this sucks. I didn't want my fans to think that heroin was cool, but then I've had fans come up to me and give me the thumbs up telling me they're high. That's exactly what I didn't want to happen. End quote. There was a small time in 1994 that Lane got clean. It was after Kurt Cobain's suicide. It scared him, and he was temporarily off drugs, but he returned again. In 2011, Drummer Sean Kinney told an interviewer the following, Lane wasn't the only one battling addiction. He was the focal point like singers are, so they'd single him out. But the truth was, it was pretty much everybody. I definitely had my hand firmly on the wheel going off the cliff. And the reason we pulled back, you know, when you stop, when you have two number one records, it's really not the greatest career move. But we did that because we love each other and we didn't want to die in public. And I know for a fact in my heart that if we were to continue, that I wouldn't be on the phone right now talking to you. I wouldn't have made it. Lane cared deeply for his fans and he was bothered that a lot of them saw him as a role model and wanted to be like him. He didn't want that. He's telling the media, look, I'm a bad drug user, but don't you go doing those things. This is my personal hell and I don't want anyone to have to go through this. Learn from me. He also didn't like being portrayed as this rock god. He once said, I saw all the suffering that Kurt Cobain went through. I didn't know him really well, but I just saw this real vibrant person turn into a real shy, timid, withdrawn, introverted person who could hardly get a hello out. He also said, after I got my first gold record, my friend came over and pulled out a couple lines of blow, and I pulled the gold record off the wall and used it. I guess it's like a way to show that he really didn't care about being a celebrity or winning awards. Alice in Chains played their last show in 1996 when they opened for Kiss. Jerry and the band were super excited. I mean, who wouldn't want to open for Kiss? Fans described Lane as staying firmly grounded in one spot in front of the mic, and after a couple songs, fans noticed Lane wasn't right. There was something off about him. This wasn't the same Lane that they were used to seeing in music videos. They say it wasn't a terrible show, but they know what Lane is capable of as a frontman, and this wasn't it. I will link the video down below, but there isn't any audio due to copyright, but you can see Lane in the band. Lane ended up overdosing after the show and had to be hospitalized. Afterwards, the band just kind of disbanded. They never officially broke up, but Lane's drug use was becoming much more active. He's using heroin every single day. Many times you'll see Lane wearing fingerless gloves in photos and on stage. This was due to covering up his marks on his hands. If Lane couldn't find a vein in his arm, he would resort to using his hands, and we'll get into more of that later. 
Meanwhile, Jerry Cantrell is releasing solo albums and doing these solo tours. Jerry wanted to continue to play music, and if that meant without his partner Lane, that's just what he'd have to do. A lot of the songs he wrote were written about the demise of Alice in Chains and the band just falling apart. To be honest, I feel like Jerry Cantrell could have fronted Alice in Chains himself if it would have been from the very beginning. But Lane's unique voice, which was their signature thing, wouldn't be there. Even though Jerry has a great voice, the band would sound like a completely different band. Lane at this point is becoming a recluse and not going out in public. He buys a condo. Now, this isn't just any condo. He pays $262,000 for it. It's 1,500 square foot. It's on the fifth floor of a building, so it's like an apartment, but it's the size of a large home. He bought it under his alias name, which he used so people wouldn't know who he was. His alias was John LaRusta. You can tell he got LaRusta from his song Rooster. Definitely a play on words. Lane lived in this beautiful giant condo for the next five years, and it would ultimately be his resting place. We'll get into that. I looked up the condo and the new owners bought it in 2017 for $783,000, and it really is a nice place. Now we're up to 1998. This comes from an article in Guitar World. There's a record producer named Dave Jordan, and he's working on an Offspring album. Well, he gets a call that Allison Chains want to come into the studio and record two new songs with Lane. This is like a one-off thing for their box set. It's going to be like a reunion for Allison Chains, a very small one, even if it's just to record two songs. Well, the problem is that the Offspring already have the studio book, but they agreed to let Allison Chains use it instead. Both bands were on the same record label, and it worked out well. Dave Jordan and his crew of engineers were really excited. They have to break down all of Offspring's gear and set up Alice in Chains to record. The studio's sound guys were especially excited. They are finally going to meet Lane and Jerry, and they are freaking out like little kids. Someone says, well, you know, today is Lane's birthday. So one of them goes out and buys a birthday cake and a candle, and they're all done at 10 a.m., but the band just needs to get here, and they're pacing and they're waiting for them to show up. The drum techs and guitar techs are the first to arrive. They set up their equipment, and then Jerry, Sean, and Mike arrive in the afternoon. They record the drums, the guitars, and the bass parts. All they need now is Lane, but he's not there yet, and it's getting late in the afternoon. There was a sense of excitement waiting for Lane to show up. He finally arrives, and it's around 3 o'clock a.m. Well, this was not the Lane that these guys were expecting. He's very tiny and fragile. He's got glasses and hair past his shoulders, and he's missing all his teeth, and he's very, very pale. He's wearing a necklace that has some kind of pipe on it, and he's got a black satchel he's carrying around. He's extremely skinny. At six foot one, he's like 100 pounds. You can find these photos online if you Google Lane Staley last public photos. No one would see an image of him again for the next four years and up until his death. So these guys are pretty disappointed because Lane is obviously high on heroin. He's fading in and out of it. They say there was flashes of the old Lane. He would smile and crack a joke, and then he'd disappear into the bathroom for a bit. He still has a sense of humor, including grabbing a guy's ass when he walked by. Lane gave some PlayStation tips to one of the young sound engineers. They brought the the cake out and sang happy birthday to him. They realize it's getting late, and Lane still hasn't recorded his vocals yet. 
Dave Jordan decides to call it a night. It's 5 a.m. Everyone's been working for 24 hours except Lane, who had just gotten there a couple hours before. He tells the guys to come back on Sunday. Well, Lane says he has to attend his sister's wedding and he's not coming back on Sunday. Jerry Cantrell kind of scolds Lane in front of everyone. Lane froze up like a small child whose parents caught him doing something. Now, Jerry doesn't deal with Lane's excuses and his bullshit the way everybody else does. He's kind of like, I know you better than this. There ends up being an argument and everyone leaves. It's important to mention also that Lane's sister was married almost two months before. We know Lane just wants to get back to his condo and was using his sister's wedding as an excuse. Dave tries to book a studio in Seattle where Lane could record his vocals, but at that point, Lane's just like, fuck all of you. Eventually, he does record his vocals with someone else and wants to mix it with the rest of the band who was recorded with Dave Jordan. Now, Lane's vocals are hard to do because he doesn't have any teeth. It gives him a lisp, and they have to try to work around that and add special effects. The two songs are recorded, and you can listen to them right now on any music platform or YouTube or whatever. Kind of surreal listening to them, knowing what condition Lane was in at the time. These are the last two songs Allison Chains would record with Lane. They are called Get Born Again and Died. I definitely recommend checking them out. On Halloween night in 1998, while playing a solo show, this would be a much smaller venue than Allison Chains would have played at. Jerry Cantrell looks out at the crowd and sees a barely recognizable face. A wave of sadness hits as Lane doesn't look the way he once did. For reference, the photo of Lane with pink hair on your screen was taken just two years earlier when he appears to be more healthy. Jerry calls out to Lane in the crowd and tells him to come on stage and sing a song with him, but Lane declines. Later, they meet backstage. It is only 1998, but this was the last confirmed public sighting. I don't think there's any photos of Lane from this night that I can find anyway. Lane goes to a Christmas party at a bar, and there's a guy there named Randy Biro. Randy did some guest vocals on Allison Chain's album, Jar of Flies. He's told Lane wants to talk with him. He says, well, where is he? They point at a guy standing just a few feet away and say, that's him. Randy feels bad because he didn't recognize Lane. He describes Lane as looking like a fragile 90-year-old man, when in reality, he was only 30 years old. This was still at a point when Lane was allowing some visitors into his home. That will eventually stop. But Lane invites Randy back to his condo, which is not far from the bar. Randy said Lane had the biggest TV he's ever seen in the living room. He had a lot of nice stuff. Randy is drug-free and clean, but he asked Lane if he had anything that he could have. Lane responds, yeah, but I'm not going to give it to you because you're clean. I'm not going to be a part of this. If you need to go do that, you go do it somewhere else. I'm, I don't want to be a part of it, and I don't want you to end up like me. Randy leaves, and that's the last time he saw him. Lane hated doing interviews. He wasn't really built for them. Lane says he's not the kind of guy you should have in front of a camera. Lane says he once learned through the internet that he had AIDS. When asked about his drug addiction, Lane told Rolling Stone magazine back in 1996, Nobody ever asked Meatloaf, what do you eat? Why do you eat so much? Shouldn't you lose some weight? No, he shouldn't. He's fucking Meatloaf. He writes songs and he has a great time and it's none of your fucking business. Maybe he eats Meatloaf every night, you know? He goes on to say, people have a right to ask questions and dig deep when you're hurting people and things around you. But when I haven't talked to anybody in years and every article I see is dope this and junky that, that ain't my title. 
Like, hi, I'm Lane, I'm a nail biter, you know? My bad habits aren't my title. My strengths and my talent are my title. I'm not excusing Lane's heroin addiction here, but Lane was no longer using to get high. He needed it for survival. As he said, he's like a diabetic who needs their insulin. Lane was open with everyone about his heroin addiction, including his mother. His mother says he was in and out of treatment at least 10 times. He overdosed overdosed multiple times. She describes her son as being stalked by addiction. In one instance, Allison Chain's drummer, Sean Kinney, was sitting behind his drums when Lane arrived at band rehearsal. Lane had just gotten out of rehab and was high as a kite. Sean threw his drumsticks down and said he'd never play another note with Lane. The last few years of living alone as a recluse in his condo involved spending most of the day playing video games. Lane was like really good at video games. He would occasionally leave the house to go to the local Toys R Us to buy new video games. No one recognizes him as the former rock icon in the music world. He looked completely different. He was also in the store with soccer moms and grandparents shopping for their grandkids. Not many young rock and metal guys are at Toys R Us. He goes in, buys his video games, and he gets out. He doesn't say a word to anyone. Lane wasn't able to digest food well. He survived off supplements. He loved to drink root beer. I don't know if he was much of an alcohol drinker. I think any habit like that would be overshadowed by his heroin use. No one ever talks about Lane smoking pot, obviously. Not that pot is a drug, but back in the 90s, people saw it as a bad thing. It's nothing compared to what Lane was involved in. No one visits Lane except for his dealers. Well, people want to visit him. His friends call and he won't answer. They come to his condo, walk up to the fifth floor and bang on his door. He won't answer for anyone. His dealer is the only one he wants to see. Friends, including his former drummer, Sean Kinney, say there were times they thought about just kicking the door down and dragging him out and forcing him into rehab. He had been in rehab countless times before and always went back to his old ways. They say Lane did not want help. He made that very clear. And it's difficult to help someone who doesn't want to help themselves. Sean Kinney said he called Lane at least three times a week for years, and he would never answer. Lane did give an interview two months before his death. It was obviously given over the phone. It happened at 2 o'clock a.m. During this time, he was a recluse, but he agreed to give an interview with this journalist from Argentina. Her name is Adriana Rubio. She says she spoke to him for two and a half hours. Adriana actually wrote a book about Lane called Angry Chair, and I'm curious if any of the interview is detailed in the book. She has never published the exact transcript or released the audio, but she did give us some insight into what he said. Lane tells her he has a fever and he's nauseous. I know I'm dying. My liver is not functioning and I'm throwing up all the time and I'm shitting my pants. The pain is more than you could handle. It's the worst pain in the world. Dope sick hurts the entire body. He also talked about when he was younger and went on a quest to find his dad who left when he was a kid. He found his dad and his dad had been clean from drugs for six years, but he and Lane found each other getting high together. He also knew his son was a rock star with a ton of money and was constantly asking Lane for money to get high. He was using him and Lane knew he had to let him go, much like his dad let him go when he was younger. I think it's important to point out that Lane's family denounced this book and even say it was possible that no interview was given at all. They say that Lane was such a recluse and his last interview he gave was three years before in 1999. They say her book was full of lies. 
One thing that made them first question is that Adriana claims Lane used some of his lyrics in their casual conversation, and his family and friends say he would never do that under any circumstances. When the book was printed, it was after his death, and he would have been the only other person besides her to be able to confirm that the interview even existed. It's been rumored that during this time, Lane contracted gangrene in his arms from needle use. I've heard he's lost his whole arm completely, but that's not confirmed. Lane eventually had to resort to shooting heroin into his hands and in the area between his fingers and also into his genital area. His veins in his arms were completely collapsed. Lane would lay around the house, nodding off on heroin, playing video games, listening to music, and created art. creating art. This went on for three or four years. At some point in the weeks before his death, he began using crack cocaine. He would mix it with heroin. He had a number of dealers he basically just employed to bring him drugs. Lane did keep in contact with his mother, Nancy, and his stepdad, Jim. His family almost couldn't believe it when Lane showed up in February of 2002 to visit his newborn nephew, Oscar. Now, there is one last unreleased photo of Lane. This was two months before his death. This is one that fans have been speculating about for years and praying that the family will someday release. The photo is one his family took during this visit when he was holding newborn Oscar. The photo has never been released to the public, but there have been artists that have drawn their depiction of the photo. You can look up Lane Staley Oscar photo and see recreations of the photo as the family described it. It pictures a smiling Lane looking at a baby he's holding. Lane's stepdad describes this visit as, quote, We had not seen Lane for some time, and he seemed calm. He was certainly timid due to his teeth problem, but he was serene, and you could say he had a little spark in his eyes when he saw Oscar. It was as if he knew what life was and that it was the next generation of his family that he could be a part of or not. But it was an exciting time, and it did not last long. Lane kept playing with Oscar as if he wanted to feel the next generation coming. He was smiling and looked like the Lane we knew, but he appeared to be older than his age and looked ill. He did not look very well, but he was kind and happy with the moment, end quote. On April 4th, 2002, this would be one day before Lane passed away. Lane is visited by his former bassist, Mike Starr. Mike would be the last person to see Lane alive. Now, Mike Starr is heavy, heavy on pills during this time. He's not on heroin like Lane, but he's not in a good state himself. He comes to Lane's condo. Lane and Mike start arguing about Lane's drug use. Lane argues back that he has no room to talk with how bad he's fucked up on pills. Mike yells that he's calling 911 for Lane because he's so out of it. Lane tells him if he does that, he will never speak to him again. Mike storms off. And Lane calls out to him that he needs him to stay and please don't leave him, not like this. But Mike leaves him. One day later, Lane would pass away. Lane was 34 years old. On April 19th, 2002, Lane's former manager, Susan, gets a call from Lane's accountant. He tells her that Lane hasn't withdrawn any money from his account in two weeks. He was pulling out large sums of cash from his bank account for years every week like clockwork so he could pay for his drugs, but nothing had been happening in two weeks. 
Susan calls Lane's mother, Nancy, and Nancy calls 911. I also read that Nancy was there just a day or two prior, but didn't get an answer at the door. The police show up along with Nancy and her husband, Jim. There's mail piling up at the door, and they know something is wrong. They break down the door. Lane's cat, Sadie, is running around like crazy and acting very strange. The large TV I talked about earlier is on, and it's crackling in the other room. They move through the house and discover Lane slumped over on the couch. His body is partially decomposed, and this scene is really awful to look at. The coroner puts his death at April 5th, which was two weeks earlier. That would be one day after Mike Starr left him and stormed out. It was also eight years to the day that his friend Kurt Cobain passed away. Lane weighed only 86 pounds. He was surrounded by drugs and needles. His autopsy revealed that he died of a mixture of heroin and crack cocaine, also known as a speedball. The world mourned Lane and a vigil took place in Seattle. Members of Alice in Chains, along with Chris Cornell, were in attendance and gave hugs to fans, and it was a really sad night. It was the same place where eight years before a vigil was held for Kurt Cobain. Sean Kinney says Lane's death was like the world's longest suicide. He was on his deathbed and took years for him to go to sleep. Alice in Chains released a statement. We are heartbroken over the death of our beautiful friend. He was a sweet man with a keen sense of humor and a deep, deep sense of humanity. He was an amazing musician, an inspiration, and a comfort to so many. He made great music and gifted it to the world. We are proud to have known him, to be his friend, and to create music with him. For the past decade, Lane struggled greatly. We can only hope that he has at last found some peace. We love you, Lane, dearly, and we will miss you endlessly. I remember in 2002 hearing that Lane Staley had passed away on MTV. My son Michael was two years old, and I was carrying him in the front yard of our townhouse. I was shocked, and it's almost surreal knowing that the little two-year-old boy I had in my arms would grow up and love Alice in Chains music and say how much he loved Lane's voice. I would like to think that Michael has met Lane by now, and he could tell him that himself. Mike Starr was haunted for many years. He was tormented that he was the last person to see Lane alive, and Lane didn't want him to leave, and he left anyway. Mike got deeper and deeper into drugs, and he was never the same again. He eventually apologized to Lane's mother for leaving him that day and not calling 911. She forgave him and told him it wasn't his fault. Sadly, Mike Starr passed away in 2011 of a drug overdose. At the time of Lane's death, his net worth was $5 million, and he left his estate to his mother. She started the Lane Staley Foundation, which treats heroin addicts and provides assistance to their families. There's a video clip somewhere of Lane being asked if he believed in life after death. He smiled and said, maybe I'll come back as some sort of aquatic creature or a giant insect, an Amazonian beetle. Lane once said, I believe there's a wonderful place to go after this, and I don't believe there's eternal damnation for anyone. I'm not into religion, but I have a good grasp on my spirituality. I just believe that I'm not the greatest power on this earth. I didn't create myself, because if I did, I would have done a hell of a better job. If alive today, Lane would be 54 years old. Wherever you are, Lane, you are missed and you are loved by fans across the globe. I hope you are finally at peace. Thank you for all that you gave us, and thank you for giving my son and I something to share. 
That's it for this week. Again, all my sources are listed in the description area of the video. Take care and much love to you all.